Ah. Weekend Variety Wireless. It looked for all the world to me like the Good Friday Agreement between opposing, uh, between uh, an agreement, a concord, an accord between two formerly opposing groups like uh, the Loyalists and the Republicans in Northern Ireland. Of course, it's nothing like that, but the imagery is profoundly the same, and that's farming signing up with Forest and Bird. Find out about that uh, later on this hour. Next up, though. It can be gloomy. Do we get climate change fatigue? Um, best listen, though. A cat by the name of Will Steffen, and he knows his apples regarding climate science, um, has stark warnings about tipping points, and uh, th there is a redo of what we're heading towards regards climate change. At the risk of entering a hothouse climate, uh, the weather's been nuts, that is for sure. Alrighty, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, heat waves and things like that. Although you go outside today, lovely. Maybe the uh, the tyranny of the human lifetime. Anyway, that will be next. Do we just assume the position? What can be done? The Weekend Variety Wireless. Occasionally, listeners, you get these reports out regarding climate change. Some uh, seem to be, well, they have a wide range, anyway, of what the prediction of our climate fate may be, and that is anthropogenic climate fate. We do know, of course, climate has changed vastly over the millions of years life has been on Earth, the billions, may we say, and uh, life has changed that climate. This may be... Well, it seems to be a very, very different scenario, especially given the rapidity of it. So, the latest paper out does seem to be gloomy reading, but we'll ask one of the paper writers, Will Steffen, who's from the Australian National University in Canberra. Will, these are real warning-type papers, aren't they? Is it right for me to say that yours is at a more extreme kind of prediction of what might happen? No, I actually don't think so. In fact, uh, a colleague of ours who commented on the paper made a really good point. He said a lot of people could accuse us of crying wolf, but he said really what this paper is doing is saying the wolves are now in sight. So what we're saying is that there are some very realistic, very well-founded concerns that we are not framing the climate change challenge in the right way. That is, there is an assumption that the main controller on how hot and how dangerous the climate's going to get are human emissions. And that's true up to a point. But we're saying, like many complex systems, the Earth itself has tipping points and thresholds, and once you cross those, internal feedbacks in the system could likely take over and drive much higher warming uh, and much more dramatic changes to climate, even if we get our emissions down. So it's a risk analysis, and that's the risk we're putting forward now to policymakers and indeed to the public in general. Okay, so these are sort of tipping points, feedback loops, where once they get started, it's kind of like out of our hands. Yeah, look, and, and that's very common in life. Uh, you see them, uh, a good example I give is if you go out on a, on a sea kayak somewhere and you can tip it a little bit one way or the other and it's stable, but once you hit a critical point, it goes all the way over. It doesn't stop halfway. Uh, and there are all sorts of similar tipping points that we can see uh, in parts of the climate system. Okay, so these tipping point feedback loops, there are 10 in the paper. What are yeah. they? What should we look out for? Where are they coming from and how would they work? 
I'll give you some good examples of them. Uh, one is permafrost falling up in the far north, where there's an awful lot of frozen peat up in the, in the wet soils up there. And once that gets started decomposing through warming, that decomposition reaction itself generates heat, which forms the tipping point. So once you get to a certain level of warming, there's a massive amount of carbon that can be released from up there. Other examples are the boreal forests, which are the great northern forests of, of Canada, Siberia, and so on. They're starting to burn now, uh, and they're under stress mainly, again, from increasing heat, increasing insect damage, uh, and that weakens them, and then fire goes through. Amazon forest is another one. There are also some that, are, that uh, don't involve carbon. They're related to the ability of the Earth to reflect sunlight and, and cool the planet. The obvious one is the sea ice up over the Arctic Ocean, and we know that that's diminishing at a very rapid rate. In fact, most scientists say we've actually crossed that tipping point already. So those are just a, sort of a sample of, of the types of tipping points we're talking about here. All of them are well known. There's a, a fair degree of research on all of them, so we can make some pretty reasonable estimates of where those tipping points might lie and how much they may warm the climate. Were you just saying that the Canada, northern Canada, Canadian forests are burning? Did I mishear it? Yeah, they're burning more often. I mean, fire is a natural feature of those forests. Oh, yeah. uh, but what we're finding, for example, in, in Canada where they have really good data... The, the spruce bark beetle, which is an insect that attacks the trees, because it's warmer, that beetle can uh, accelerate its life cycle, explode in population numbers, attack the trees, uh, which weakens them, and then fire goes through. The Canadians have about 100 years' worth of data, and that data shows that the last, in the last 20 or 30 years, those forests have gone from being a sink of carbon, soaking up carbon, to being carbon neutral or even emitting carbon in a net sense back to the atmosphere. So already that's showing that that tipping point starting to move. Okay. Is there an observation that would be particularly worrisome from you? Yeah, I would say the observations are actually looking at the climates of the past, uh, where we see uh, where the climate has been for example, um, 400 ppm CO2. And that was the mid-Pliocene, which is about 3, 4 million years ago. That's not very long in geological time. No. So the continents were in the same place, circulation was about the same and so on. That led to a 2 to 3 degree warming, uh, and it led to 6 to 9 metres of sea level rise. What we're saying is that even today we may be locked into that sort of future. And if you go back a little bit further in time, when you see uh, CO2 levels 450 to 500, you see 4 to 5 degrees warmer and much higher sea levels. So, so I think those observations are the things that worry me because they tell us quite clearly the Earth is capable of moving into those states, uh, whether we like it or not. So you're saying 4 million years ago we were at the same carbon dioxide level? Yes. Okay. Why didn't we see a feedback loop lurch the temperature much higher then? There were the same sinks, I'm assuming, of methane, tundra, and carbon sequestered that could be uh, let out? Yeah, that's a good question. Our best estimates are two to three degrees. So that's telling us that at 400 ppm today, we could go up to three degrees. Uh, and, of course, the one before that, 15 million years ago, the mid-Miocene, mid had CO2 levels of 4 to 500 parts per million, uh, and they went to 4 to 5 degrees. So uh, given the uncertainty ranges about those paleo estimates, uh, you cannot rule out the fact 
that if we go to 450, and, and we're pretty much committed to 450, uh, given inertia in, in the economic and technological systems, 450 could easily give you uh, 4 degrees Celsius or even, even 5 degrees Celsius rise. So uh, we look at those two periods in particular in the past. Okay, but we hadn't seen that runaway effect that this is in some way predicting. We didn't see it back then, a runaway effect of many more degrees. No, we, 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 we never use the word runaway. Okay. Um, that's, that's a misnomer. It's not a runaway. It's a shift to the state of the system. And what we're saying is that there are a number of feedbacks that don't go on indefinitely. They are big enough to raise the temperature to four or five degrees, and we definitely see that in the past. So it's not a runaway uh, that, that, that just goes on and on and on. It's a state shift in the conditions of Earth. Uh, and we, what, we, what we're saying is that, first of all, we can see that the Earth can exist in these states in the past. That's no surprise at all. Uh, second of all, we know many of the processes that lead to the types of shifts we're seeing. And third, we see observations, as I, I was mentioning, with the Canadian forest, with the Arctic sea ice, that some of these processes are already shifting today at a one-degree temperature rise. Uh, now, bear in mind that we're at 400 ppm. That temperature rise hasn't caught up with the CO2 level yet. Uh, we're pretty much committed to going to 1.5. Uh, even at the levels we, we have today. Uh, and, of course, that will uh, accentuate some of these feedbacks that I've been, been talking about. Okay, that's what you believe we're locked into. Yeah, I think so, and, and, and I think that's for a number of reasons. One is the climate system hasn't equilibrated yet with the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. Yeah. Second of all, we're not going to stop CO2 at 405 or 6, wherever we are today, because we can't get emissions to zero tomorrow. You know, it's going to take a couple of decades, even if we, we do our best. That's going to lock us in, I think, to, to 440, 450 at the best-case scenario. Right, yeah, that's the you-can't-turn-around-the-Queen-Mary-in-a-hurry scenario. Exactly, good analogy. Yeah, all right. What, one of the more worrying things, I'm a bit ignorant of this, is the rapid rate of the rise in uh, percentage of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, carbon dioxide. Has it risen at this rate previously, similar to what we've had from the Industrial Revolution to now? No, uh, not that we can see. The most rapid rate we experience actually is, is the last couple of decades. And that's been a, a, an extremely fast rate indeed. And the fastest one we can see in comparison would be the last time the Earth came out of an ice age, which is from about uh, 20,000 years ago to about 12,000 years ago. And CO2 rose from about 180 to 280 parts per million. And that was a rapid, rapid rise. How rapid? That, that, took, that took about uh, six, 7,000 years right. to go from 180 to 280. Sorry, geologically that's fast. Yeah. But what we've experienced in the last 200 years is more than geologically fast. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's probably 10 to more like 100 times faster. So is that a factor or is it just the, the level of carbon dioxide? Does that make a difference to the modelling? Can we know? The, the rate is a factor in, in so much as it diminishes the capacity of the Earth to absorb some of that carbon. Now, even today, um, a little less than half of that carbon that we emit gets absorbed by ocean and land. But that capacity, uh, in a relative sense, is weakening. We've seen that weakening over the last 30 or 40 years. And part of the reason it's weakening is because we are putting CO2 in so fast that the Earth's natural removal processes can't keep up. That, that's where the rate, I think, does actually make a difference. Okay. Uh, harder for things to adapt in that amount of time. 
right. Or the systems, shall we say, rather than uh, biology. Well, this is predicted to be quite devastating for, you say, human civilization. In what ways? Well, the first thing you can say is, is our ability to grow food. Food security is obviously fundamental for humans. Uh, and when you look at where we grow food around the world to support 7.5 billion people, there are some large agricultural zones which are sort of sweet spots of good soils and uh, good climate. Central USA is a good example. Western Europe is a good example. Indo-Gangetic Plain in India is a good example. Those areas uh, will obviously experience, they are experiencing shifts in climate already, changes in rainfall, much higher temperatures, and so on. So already today there's a race on to make sure we can adapt our food production systems uh, to cope with these changes. Uh, but that's at a one-degree temperature rise. If we're talking about a two or three degrees on top of that, uh, and the fact that that could uh, occur, uh, say, in a century, uh, that really is going to stress food production systems. Uh, and, of course, any defense or security analyst would tell you that when people can't grow enough food to support themselves, they do one of two things. They migrate or they fight or they do both. Or they die. Uh, just, or they die. Well, people don't sort of willingly die. They'll try to do anything right, like right. any creature would right. to, to survive. And that means they, they move or they fight for what resources are left. So that, that's um, a real concern. Other things, of course, that are going to happen would be, would be sea level rise and displacement. Uh, which obviously also causes migration conflict. Um, when you're looking at sea level rises of up to a meter or perhaps a bit more per century, that's going to start affecting uh, long-lived infrastructure, start flooding it. Uh, there are enormous cities now that live in, the, in low-lying delta areas, particularly in Asia, uh, and they're at risk uh, from, these, um, from these scenarios we're painting that uh, if, if we cross this planetary threshold and go to a much harder world, we're eventually looking at sea level rises of 10 to 20 metres, and that's, that's really massive. I want to revisit that runaway word that you have banned because I'm trying to get my head around how it couldn't be a runaway if we have uh, a temperature rise which then affects the release of more greenhouse material which would yep. cause a temperature rise which would then go on to release more greenhouse positive feedback material because you've risen it even more which would create a temperature rise. I, I think you see where I'm going. Why is it not yeah. a runaway? No, look, it's a, it's a very fast shift to another state because you, ultimately there are caps on how big those feedbacks are. For example, when you look at the reflectivity uh, decreasing as you decrease ice, there's only a certain amount of ice you can lose. So once you've lost the Arctic sea ice in summertime, which does give a boost to temperature, it's capped then because you can't lose any more ice. Once you deforest the Amazon basin, for example, there's a certain amount of carbon there uh, which goes up. But once you do that, and convert it into, say, a grassland or a savanna, then that uh, amount of carbon stops. So, in fact, what these are are feedbacks that shift the state of the system to another much hotter but stable state. And when we look in the past, we can see that the Earth has existed for uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of years in states that are much hotter than present, but they're stable. It doesn't run away and, for example, boil off the oceans or something like that. That, ca that can't happen. So the point is these feedbacks are fast, they have tipping points where they're irreversible, but they're capped at the upper limit. And that's what puts you into a different state of the system. That upper limit, though, we have seemed to have experienced in the deep past when the oceans were putrid, acidic, almost devoid of life, but not, of course, because life did carry on. The Earth has been in that state before, hasn't it? 
Yes, but that's in the deep, deep, deep past. So we're actually looking at the more recent past where the continents are in pretty much uh, similar configurations from today and where the astronomical forcing, Earth's orbit and the sun, are reasonably similar to to today. So the further you go back in time, the harder it is to make really strong analogies uh, to where we might be going. Okay. It it does sound gloomy. Do you have any... Uh, reason for optimism at all because people can get climate gloom fatigue and just assume the position yeah look up but i think that that fatigue and gloom is of our own making uh, and i say that because uh, there have been really solid scientific analyses over the past couple of decades that have said look we're facing big risks uh, we simply haven't bitten the bullet yet uh, as a globalized society in saying Look, uh, we, we don't have a choice, really. If we want to safeguard the future for our children, this has to take precedent over, over economic and other considerations. We simply have to do it. The positive signs we see is just in the last decade, there have been enormous advances in technologies, particularly for energy production, that are there, they're reliable, they become much more cheaper, and the constraints are now political. Uh, We see that very strongly here in Australia. Uh, We have enormous renewable resources. We have great technologies. We have a lot of people who want to get on with it. But the powerful vested interests want to block it and and stay with 20th century technologies. In fact, we have good 21st century technologies. So I'm I'm guardedly optimistic that once we get over this mindset constraint, we have enormously creative people and technologies that can really help us make some very fast transitions. Okay. I think it's called the fault in the frog, or you could call it the uh, the tyranny of the duration of a human lifetime. Things just don't seem to be particularly bad at the moment. I know there are a lot of fires happening and droughts in Australia, but uh, droughts have happened and fires have happened before. We go outside and think, oh, it's, it's all right. That is restraining our action because over a human lifetime, we don't see anything radical happening in a decade that makes us go, holy crap, let's do something. That could be true in general, but people who have experienced, say, the Black Saturday fires in Victoria in 2009 or extreme flooding events in Queensland or people who have snorkeled over a dead and dying Great Barrier Reef and actually smelled the stench of of enormous numbers of dying organisms, uh, that's left a mark. And when you talk to those people, they say things are changing. And and even traditionally conservative groups like like Australian farmers, there's been an enormous uh, amount of of discussion amongst the farming community here in the last five years of saying, wait a minute, this isn't natural. Things are changing. They're changing fast. They're making our life tougher. So I think that uh, you're right that that it's hard for these long-term changes to be felt. But I think some of the sudden changes that are triggered as part of the long-term changes, extreme weather events, are being felt. And hopefully that's going to have an impact on people's uh, desire and willingness to make the changes we need to make. Okay. What about geoengineering as at least something to consider? Because um, people's general acquisitiveness, do I think that people in Saudi Arabia are going to sit on top of that well with billions of barrels underneath it saying, nah, don't think we should sell this actually, even though the price is high, I'll just leave it in there. I don't know if I have faith that that sort of thing is going to happen. Could we get into geoengineering? Is it an option or are we playing with something we really don't know enough about? Yeah, look, there are a lot of things that come under the the tag of geoengineering. The one that's being discussed a lot, and you'll see this 
in the uh, IPCC special report on the 1.5 target uh, is taking CO2 out of the atmosphere by various means, liquefying it under pressure and low temperature and then storing it underground in, in old uh, geological formations, disused oil wells, for example. There are some pilot projects that are uh, attempting to do that. Uh, often they work by fitting out a smokestack, say, of a, of, of a coal-fired power station with something that captures the CO2, liquefies it, and so on. So, yes, there's a lot of discussion around that. Right now it's not really economically or, or really technologically uh, feasible. Uh, there are other proposals, for example, like scattering aerosols in the stratosphere to deflect incoming sunlight. Uh, and there's enormous controversy around those sort of proposals. So that would allow us to keep emitting CO2 but keep the temperature down. Yeah. But they would kill most life in the ocean eventually through acidifying it very rapidly because CO2, some of it dissolves in the ocean and acidifies it. So uh, issues like that create enormous controversy around these ideas. However, even in our paper, we say they must be considered and discussed. Uh, as possible parts of solutions. We don't advocate uh, one way or the other, but we just say, look, there's a whole range of things that humanity has to do now uh, to face this problem, and that indeed is one of them. Some may pine for the old days of smog, particulates in the atmosphere. That actually is scientifically proven to have had an effect in reducing the climate during, uh, when was it, around the 1940s or something? Yeah, sure. Uh, and in fact, uh, yeah, that's well known. Uh, the smog, in fact, is exactly the same thing I was talking about. They're, they're really okay. called aerosol particles. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's local and it's in the trop troposphere, lower atmosphere. The proposals are to inject similar particles in the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, where they stay up for several years. A, a good analogy is when you have a big volcano eruption like uh, Mount Pinatubo. Yeah. Um, that it naturally injects a lot of aerosols up in the stratosphere. And in fact, you can see a cooling effect when that happens. That doesn't stick in the system, though, or help us in the long run, does it? It's just a temporary reprieve? Yeah, that's right, because a lifetime it would, would be on order of a few years, maybe up to five years or so. So we'd need to continuously put, put them up there. And of course, as they rain out, they're going to cause problems, too, mm. uh, in the form of pollution coming back down to the Earth's surface. We've been speaking with Will Steffen, who's uh, been a science advisor to the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency in Australia on the advisory board of the uh, Bureau of Meteorology in SAME and uh, National Centre for Atmospheric Research. Just a little more on this study. It's a multinational study. How was it done? How was this all put together? Look, it's, it's, it's uh, work that's uh, been undertaken over two years' time. Uh, we kicked it off with a workshop up in Stockholm, Sweden. Most of our collaborators are from Europe. Uh, and uh, we got some of the best Earth system scientists from around the planet to discuss this idea of have we framed the whole climate change, global change issue correctly. Uh, and then we followed that up with uh, extensive uh, literature research on uh, what past climates have looked like, extensive research on uh, what the uh, contemporary feedback systems look like and so on and put this uh, paper together and i should add very quickly that we had several social scientists on the paper too who helped us enormously in in saying uh you natural scientists are good at diagnosing the, the problem but we need to talk about uh, potential solutions and uh, we do have a, a section in the report on that and a lot more in our uh, our supporting information on potential solutions okay uh finally I'll put you on the spot for the year 2100. Some people listening today, you never know. If you're young enough, you may well be alive. Uh, but let's say 2100, that year is going to come around. Um, describe planet Earth. 
Oh, gee, uh, it's hard to say because there's there's, there's a big um, uh, a big turning point that either we make as humanity, uh, and we have a, a climate that's say around 1.5 to 2 degrees warmer, that we've adapted to that. Uh, we've managed uh, to solve the long-term problem of energy balance at the Earth's surface. But the point is, if we do that, we've got to continuously manage our interaction with the planet. The Earth isn't going to simply park itself at two degrees. So we have a very uh, adapt, nimble, scientifically savvy society that is very good at managing itself, most importantly, managing its, its consumption, managing its technologies. So we take pressure off the Earth system. And uh, we also learn how to manage parts of that system in ways that stabilize it. The point we make in this paper is I think we're past the point where we can simply uh, stop doing what we're doing and the Earth will go back down to the pre-industrial state. It won't. We've already pushed it out of the Holocene. Uh, we need to think very carefully about how we particularly manage ourselves uh, to make sure by, by 2100 that people have a planet that they can actually live on. Mm. And, of course, you're not saying that naturally occurring climate change is always benign either. Oh, absolutely not. It isn't. But we have developed our civilization in a 12,000-year sweet spot, the Holocene, yeah. where the changes have been relatively minor and relatively slow and allowed us to develop the complex society we have today. Whereas Wally Broker, a famous scientist, said, the Earth is actually an angry beast and you don't want to poke it with a big stick. Right, yeah. So, yeah. so what we're doing now is poking it with a very big stick. Nice analogy. Will Stephan, uh, appreciate your time and thank you for elucidating on this paper. Gloomy as it My is. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. An interesting uh, press release was released from two organisations. This is an accord between Forest and Bird and New Zealand's biggest farming organisation. Goodness me, it's not quite the uh, Good Friday Agreement, but it certainly uh, does have the imagery of such a thing. It wouldn't be lost on a lot of people. That is farming and conservation. Um, this is an accord between the two for practices from now and into the future. I think the uh, common saying is going forward for better environmental practice and to get an agreement like this is quite a thing. Hence we have both uh, chief executives of each organisation from PAMU, which is the trade name, if you didn't know, of Landcorp, Stephen Carden. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Graham. And uh, from Forest and Bird, the chief executive, Kevin Haig. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, hi, Graham. Hi, Steve. Now, first of all, for people who don't know, PAMU, what is your role in farming in New Zealand? Yeah, thanks, Graham. Well, look, we're a, what's called a state of enterprise. Uh, we've been around for about 100 30 years, we're owned by the New Zealand people. We've got 125 farms around the country, a mix of dairy and sheep and beef and beer. And, uh, and our job is to produce a long-term sustainable dividend return for the New Zealand people who own us. Kevin, how did this accord come about? I have noticed that Palmer have made some rather sustainable and conservation-wise uh, press releases over the last six months. This accord, how did it come about? I mean, obviously, we you know we have a number of farmers we, you know, within Forest and Bird. We've had a strong interest in the, the performance of the farming sector on environmental issues for a long time, and we've noticed that over the past few years, actually under Steve's direction, that Palmu had been 
moving in a really positive direction. They uh, put together an environment reference group with, uh, with people whose names will be familiar, like Alison Jews and Mike Joy and Guy Salmon. And that seemed to us to be really interesting, you know, that um, here was a really large farming organisation inviting in some of, some of its uh, strongest critics, if you like, you know, to help be part of the solution finding for the organisation. And that's what made me think this is something that's really worth watching. And we ended up being on a few panels together and having a few discussions I think the suggestion probably first came from Palmer about actually forming a formal relationship, but I jumped at the chance when we had it. Okay, Stephen Carden, this agreement, do you have sign-in from the farmers themselves? Because those are the people that are going to be on the ground to do whatever is going to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think as Kevin mentioned, this is not the first thing we've done in the environment space, Graham. We've um, been working for a while now to try to lower our environmental footprint and reduce our nitrogen leaking and lower our carbon footprint and different, a range of different things like that. And, you know, the cool thing for me is that our farmers are, are totally on board with this. I think for too long, the environmentalists and the farmers have been fighting each other, where, in fact, what we realise is we all want the same thing, which is to enhance the standard of living for all New Zealanders over the longer term. And what we've found is we get much more out of working with the environmental groups and bringing their ideas into our farming practices than we do opposing everything that they say. And it's been a great experience for us over the last couple of years with a shift in mindset to see how much more productive our farms have become as a result. More productive because what would be the received knowledge is that you're going to have to compromise and there will be some costs to the commercial side for that environmental concern. Well, there are some costs in the short term. If I look at, for example, our move to take out palm kernel PKE out of our farm systems, it was definitely a cost in the short term when we didn't have that cheap feed available. But what it actually made us do as an organisation was focus on how we were farming uh, and maximise our focus on growing good grass and making sure that we were feeding our cattle properly, not stocking our farms too heavily, not pushing our people too hard. And I think there are a lot of hidden costs of our current production model, which is so focused on just producing as much as we can. And we don't see those hidden costs. But now that we've started to change our practices and farm less intensively in some areas, we've, we've noticed that um, productivity and profitability from our farms is starting to lift as a result. Okay, I don't want to leave anyone behind. This palm kernel stuff, why is it being fed to cows? What does it do? What's, what's the deal there? Well, it's essentially a byproduct that comes out of the deforestation of um, palms over in uh, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, um, and it's been used in the dairy system for about 15 years. Gr- growth of it has increased dramatically. Uh, it's a really effective, very cheap feed. And what it does allow you to do as a dairy farmer is to manage some seasonal swings that happen climatically. But it also allows you to uh, intensify your farming operation fairly significantly because you can put more cows on your land because you've got this cheap feed to feed them. Um, It poses quite a significant biosecurity risk to the country to have so much palm kennel coming into the country. Uh, And we just thought it's just not a practice that consumers are going to find acceptable in the years to come and we may as well take it out of our farm systems now. So that really is more of an international concern, aside from the biosecurity thing, that's that's because of the deforestation in other places on the globe? Partly, but I think that the outcome of using lots of palm kernel and having lots of cows on the land, in many parts of the country that can't sustain the number of cows that we do put into our farms means that we put all this pressure on our natural local resources and, of course, the biggest occurrence is, you know, the degradation of the waterways, which has been a major issue principally for the dairy sector, which we are working with a lot of other dairy farmers to address. 
quite rapidly at the moment. So it is about taking a much more holistic approach to how we farm, and, and this is something that many farmers across the country are, are doing. It's certainly not just palmers. Okay. Well, usually with accords like this, there are concessions on both sides. Kevin Haig from Forest and Bird, concessions from Forest and Bird to at least get Landcorp Palmu on board here? I would say that actually this is not an agreement that's about concessions. It's about common ground. That's one of the great things here, you know, that there is common ground of us both wishing to actually transform the way that we do farming in New Zealand so that it actually has at least, a, at least a neutral effect on the environment and preferably a positive one that actually is restorative. So that, that's great. I mean, there are risks. It's possible that some one, one of the 125 Pamu farms does something bad on the environment and then some of my members might point at me and say, well, we shouldn't be in bed with that farmer. That's the risk from our point of view, but that's dwarfed absolutely by by the upside. And the upside is being able to jointly develop new ways of doing farming that are restorative of the environment using the expertise both of farmers and of environmentalists uh, working together. And, and certainly we want to do that on on the Palmu farms. We've got some, some um, practical work sort of underway now. And then we want to sh- showcase what's possible and, and see if we can provide some solutions for other farmers as well, because we know that many farmers actually want to make change, but at this point can't see the way through some of the obstacles that they face. So it's part of our collective job of finding those ways. Okay. And is it a case of try harder for Palmu Land Corp, Stephen? Yeah, we can always do better. Uh, we're not perfect by any stretch. And uh, I hear Kevin's concerns over the fact that there might be some risk around some of our farms and we, we make mistakes, but I think what this is about particularly is is making sure we're telling the stories appropriately with honesty and, honesty and transparency of what is actually happening on farm, the good efforts that people are making, yeah. and making sure that the members of Forest and Bird and others are aware of that and, and are aware of what they can do to help farmers yeah. change their farming practices over time, and that's a key part of this partnership. Okay, number one has got to be water quality. By the way, how much dairy uh, do you have auspices over, Stephen? We've got about 60 dairy farms uh, spread across the country. Graham's so it's a big part of our portfolio and you know we've made some big moves towards organic farming over the last few years and grass fed systems and the like and um, you know it's, it's an exciting part of our business which has a great great future. Okay now on to water quality it is one of the major issues concerning farming what do you do to improve it? I, I suspect for water quality better just to not have dairy there but that has a huge economic consequence what can you do to mitigate to the extent where forest and bird is happy regarding water quality and dairy? Well, that's a complex question uh, with no easy answer. Um, and part of the partnership with forest and bird is to work with them on a particular project focused on Canterbury and a couple of the catchments down in Canterbury where there is particular pressure on uh, fresh water at the present point in time. And we have some dairy farms down there. I think it's going to be a sort of a combination of doing a whole lot of things at the same time. Graham, what, one is to make sure we get our stocking rates right and have the right number of cows on our land. The second thing is to use quite a lot of exciting new technologies that are coming through which are going to sort of limit the amount of nitrogen that's being leached as nitrous oxide through the soils. Second, third thing we're looking to do is, is look at ways in which we could potentially mix up our farming systems a bit to use some alternative farm practices or, or produce alternative products and so we're looking at a range of cropping options on some of those dairy farms too. Uh, we've got a reforestation program underway at the moment, which is all about 
enhancing our riparian planting and putting more trees uh, onto our dairy farms to increase biodiversity. So all these things are going to help get us a fair way towards where we need to be. But we've got a lot more work to do and some of the answers are not apparent to us yet. Okay, Kevin Haig, Forest and Bird. What does Forest and Bird do to help? Uh, Assuming you're doing more than pointing at farming, saying, come on, you could do better, and then going back to your next meeting. What are you going to do hands-on to help Palmer achieve this? There's some head stuff, which is contributing our, I I guess, ecological knowledge, conservation knowledge from our own nearly 100 years of work in New Zealand, but um, also from some of our partners from around the world. There's some resource there that that we bring to bear. But also, you know, a big part of what Forest and Bird has done over that um, you know, nearly a century of work has been very practical conservation work. Uh, we're looking at uh, another project with Pamu in, um, I guess, the central North Island area around regenerative farming, where we're, we're looking to bring in Forest and Bird uh, volunteers to work with the Pamu staff and, and, and their families to do a bioblitz, for example, seeing what is the what is the biology, what species are present. And, of course, we've been involved on-farm for a long time in helping out with things like riparian planting. So some of what Pamu has been doing has been actually uh, retiring some parts of its farms, you know, farm, parts of the farm that are, that are not suitable any longer for, I guess, um, productive use being returned to native forest and they're also doing a pretty major job of riparian planting while we can help out in a you know, directly practical way with that. Right, and that's uh, riparian planting around waterways. Are your yep. farmers already a, a little bit conservation savvy, Stephen, or is it uh, that they can be made more aware of biodiversity conservation things? Like, you know, some farms have extremely rare plants and animals on them they don't even know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what I find about all farmers is they are intrinsically attached to the land and attached to what's happening with the land and the waterways and the birds and the trees and everything that exists in the environment because they're so dependent on that for producing their living and, and the lifestyle in which they live. We're really, I think, just sort of harnessing the that intrinsic care for the environment that so many farmers have already and just turning that into some really practical things that we can do and provide the tools and support they need to implement. I look at, um, you know, a lot of the ideas coming into the organisation are coming from farmers both inside and outside of Palmu who have recognised opportunities to improve how they farm on their farms to improve sustainability and, and we need to, need to keep that going and make sure that it's being appropriately funded uh, to support it. Well, um, can yeah. I chip in on that one, Graham? Yeah, go, go for it. Uh, I was in, invited by Steve to uh, to attend a couple of Palmu's uh, what they call leadership conferences where the farm managers and two ICs from around the country gather together and I was really impressed by what I saw and, and the people that I met there. I thought they were great people with fantastic intentions and goodwill. And um, I could really see a group of people that we could work with. Is this in any way part of a reaction to a farmer in Canterbury who, one way or the other, I think it's in front of the courts, uh, managed to get rid of half the population of an extremely rare New Zealand plant, Mullenbeckia estonii. Well, so so for us, it isn't particularly. I mean, so not or really not not particularly about that case. Rather, the 
motivation for us I mean, has has been the sort of the, the deep knowledge of the of the profound effect that farming practices have on the environment and of those you know nearly four thousand species that are moving towards extinction, and the knowledge that if we want to save those species, if we actually want to save our nature, we have got to be changing the way that we do farming in New Zealand. And the tool that we have been using the most has been actually responding to bad situations when they arise, such as the, the, the example you give from the kaitoriti um, spit. Our thinking is, while not backing away from trying to set really strong rules and have them really well enforced, if we can also work with the leaders in the farming sector, and we definitely see Palmer in that, in that light, um, that actually that may, in fact be more successful in, in shifting farming practice faster, and that's our motivation. Yeah, okay. Safe to say, uh, Stephen from Palmu, that that sort of thing is exactly the sort of thing we don't want to see happen. You, uh, you don't want to see that happen on a Palmu farm. That's the sort of thing that a better environmental knowledge would avert. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, Kevin often talks about the fact that there are over 3,000 species of soar and fauna that are facing extinction in New Zealand, so we have quite a job put a, a stop to that and not all the blame for that obviously falls at the farmer's feet by any stretch but no. um, we've got a big role to play in helping turn that around and as I said you won't get a more willing group prepared to do that than the guys who get to enjoy that diversity who are the farmers who live on those properties. Okay enjoying the diversity is one thing uh, it feels good a lot of people may think it's just a feel-good thing what about profit and the bottom dollar does this mean you're going to be less competitive in the marketplace that your farmers aren't going to get the return that they would otherwise? No, I don't think so. In fact, I think the reverse is going to be true. I think we're already starting to see some of the milk processes, milk companies like Sinlay paying extra for good environmental animal welfare and safety practices that they're seeing on the farms who supply them. But doesn't that make the price increase at the other end, the consumer? Well, it does, but I think that's the reality we need to face as New Zealanders and as consumers, and that is if we want to have really, really cheap food, the price we pay is in the environment. Right. Um, but if we're prepared to protect the environment uh, and invest in protecting and enhancing the environment, everyone needs to do their bit, uh, including what we're prepared to pay for food because we can't have, have it both ways. Mm. Sustainable is an easily trotted out word. This is one of the goals, isn't it? Um, I suspect one of the more difficult things to achieve. Stephen? Well, it is if you think that profitability and sustainability are mutually opposing forces. I don't think they are. I just think it requires us to think quite differently about sort of the capitals we use in our business, whether they're, you know, financial capital or human capital, social capital, environmental, whatever it is, we can actually produce long-term sustainable systems that are sustainable from a profitability perspective. We want our farmers to be increasing their, you know, their, their wealth and, and sustainable from an environmental animal and, and people perspective as well. And we have to find ways of achieving that because if you only get one or two parts of that quadrant right, you're not delivering a business which is going to exist into the future. Okay, this sounds like a marvellous thing. There's only one thing, I think, that does make me feel a little, well, is it feel good more than anything else? And that is if you're expecting people to pay more for a product because they want to enjoy the natural environment. Um, what about the poor folk who just want the cheapest? Is this just a middle-class feel-good thing? I, I guess the, the, there's a sort of deeper philosophical question that sort of go, goes beyond the, 
the remit of, uh, of uh, either Pānu or Forest and Bird, I should think. But that is, how do you deal with wealth inequality and the existence of poverty in a society? Oh, and the result um, of an uh, agricultural revolution that reduced poverty on the planet to, <laughs> to miraculous degrees. Yeah, and but the, I guess the question is, should you respond to the fact that there are poor people by driving down the prices of products and making the kind of compromise on environmental performance, animal welfare, and and actually the, the, the welfare of the people working on the farms, or alternatively, should you address the fact that people are poor? I personally come down in that, in that second camp, you know, that actually we, we need to have farmed products that are farmed in ways that have an acceptable footprint on environment, animal welfare, and human welfare. Um, and uh, the consequence of that could well be higher prices, but those should be addressed by addressing poverty rather than uh, compromising on those bottom lines. Okay. Kevin Haig, uh, Chief Executive of Forest and Bird, and Stephen Carden from Palmu, thank you very much for your time. We'll definitely watch this space, and I hope it goes uh, swimmingly well. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Bye-bye. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. After new sport and weather, we've got a shipwreck tale from John McChrystal. Why are we doing that? Uh, a, Grant Smithies is away, and it gives us an opportunity. I won't go into the technical details, but it's the very easiest way to make sure that Shipwreck Tales archive is totally complete, because it's not at the moment. I went through it with a fine-tooth what's-it, and Winkle picked it, and hello... We've lost a whole bunch overboard. It was drawn to my attention by someone on Facebook. It's always handy, that thing, for you to give your feedback on um, the show. So thank you very much for people who were enjoying the Shipwreck Tales and said, what happened to the Alingamite? I remember hearing the Alingamite. And why isn't it there? It's because it fell overboard. We will play it after 11 o'clock, and that is the easiest way for us to refill the archive, and we'll do this uh, for the next few weeks until Grant Smithies gets cold feet and um, says, come on, come on, come on, get me back to do another album from the class of 1978. Anyway, it's a shipwreck tale after 11 o'clock.